You're listening to Call of the Herald, book one of the Dawning of Power trilogy, a podcast novel written and read by Brian Rathbone. For more information and additional downloads, visit brianrathbone.com. Thank you for listening. Katrin tried to convince herself it was her vivid imagination that each distorted echo was an approaching battle cry, and that within every shadow lurked men intent on killing them. Though she had vowed to show the Jean no fear, she hadn't promised not to feel any. As the valley widened into a broad plain, trees became more numerous and thickets more dense, and they had to use game trails or clear paths of their own. The shade provided respite from the glaring sun, but the underbrush slowed their journey. On a steep slope covered with thorny bushes, brambles, and vines, they found a patch of berry bushes. But the fruit lay beyond a thick screen of plants. Working with great care, they cleared a narrow passage to the berries. Benjamin knew which ones had poisonous berries, and others whose fruit was edible. Soon they had ample raspberries, blackberries, and even huckles. In a brief moment of levity, they filled themselves with fruit. Once beyond the wall of thorns, the land became more hospitable. Underbrush gave way to tall grasses, and trees were sparse. Ahead lay marshy lowland, and already dark clouds of gnats buzzed around them. Emerald biting flies darted around their heads, and walnut-sized mosquitoes attacked in legions. When I last passed this way, Benjamin said, a strip of dry land bordered this marsh on either side. Now it appears we'll have to wade through it. Scowling with squinting eyes over the saturated lowland, which now stretched across the entire valley. Narrow islands appeared throughout the marsh creating a disjointed maze of land almost entirely immersed in stagnant water, and the search for a dry path became paramount. As they moved deeper into the marsh, the stretches of water separating the islands became longer and deeper. Osborne was the first to notice the leeches, which had already attached themselves to his legs. He yanked his pant legs up and pulled the leeches off, throwing them. The rest discovered the same effect, and Benjamin suggested they tuck their pants into their boots. Slogging through the mucky quagmire was difficult and unpleasant, and Katrin was relieved when the marsh began to give way to some patches of high ground. Then, a nearby scream and a series of splashes broke the silence. I saw something flailing around behind those weeds, but I'm not sure what it was, Chase said. Shouldn't we go back to check? I think we should take a look, Benjamin said. That sounded like a man shouting, and it sounded like he was hurt. If someone is following us, I want to know for certain. Let's go, Chase. When they returned, Benjamin said, a soldier was tracking us. We don't know if he was alone, but he'll follow us no more. He was bitten by a poisonous snake, and he took his own life before we arrived. We didn't go very close, since the snake was coiled in our path, but I could tell the man was no ordinary foot soldier. 
He was a member of an elite unit. At least that's what I gather from his attire. Unlike the other soldiers, he was equipped to move quickly. His armor was light and his weapons advanced. We'll have to remain more alert. I suspect more soldiers are tracking us. Let's move on then, Katrin said. I'd like to put as much ground between us and this marsh as possible. I don't want to camp anywhere near here. By the light of one of the precious few candles that remained, Wendell Volker packed his gear. Elsa's sword lay across the blanket-covered crates he'd been using as a bed. He took no food and in no way other than burning the candle, depleted the provisions that would be needed by all those who remained in the cold caves. A twinge of guilt made Wendell pause and reconsider. These people needed him, or at least so they thought. An equally painful guilt hovered over him for abandoning Katrin, and his duty as a father had finally won out over his duty to his people. Those he had gathered in the cold caves were now as safe as they were going to be. There was nothing more he could do to ensure their well-being. In a moment of self-justification, he asserted that by leaving he would consume less of the rations. Therefore, he was doing everyone who remained a favor. Like all others, that moment passed, and he was left to deal with guilt over leaving Jensen behind. He and his brother simply saw things differently. Jensen had as much anxiety over Chase's fate as Wendell did over Katrin's, but he steadfastly refused to go after them, and he had done everything within his power to persuade Wendell to do the same. When he was honest with himself, Wendell realized that Jensen was the only reason he had stayed as long as he had. With a deep breath, he firmed his resolve and shouldered his pack. The journey ahead would be difficult and fraught with danger, but the hardest part was behind him. As he stepped out of the chamber that had been his temporary home, the journey was begun. He would find Katrin. His candle was not overly bright, but he shielded it as best as he could while allowing enough light to guide his way. To those who were immersed in darkness, even the dimmest light can shine like a beacon and Wendell had no desire to alert anyone of his departure. Fortunately, most avoided the deeper tunnels, where the air was coldest and the feeling of the land pressing down the greatest. Wendell had grown accustomed to the feelings long ago, and he walked without fear, though not without anxiety. He should have left a note for Jensen, something to explain his motives and reasoning, but he could not turn back now and there was no time to waste. Jensen would wake soon, and another day would be lost, and Katrin would be another day farther from him. In the back of his mind, his voice warned that she was already too far away, that he would never reach her in time. Ignoring that voice, Wendell moved as quickly and quietly as he could. Deep within the network of tunnels and caves, the scent of fresh air drifted. Only in a few places did shafts penetrate the rock and allow air and, in some cases, light into the caves. But Wendell now stood below one of these shafts. He had never found one of the shafts from above, 
mostly due to the fact that this part of the cold caves lay directly below a series of steep and formidable peaks. Not knowing what he would face when he emerged gave him pause, but he took a moment to plan this critical part of his escape. First, he tied a length of rope around his waist and secured the other end to his pack. The knife on his belt was all that he would carry, and all that he could use to defend himself should the outlet of the shaft be guarded. Though he thought it unlikely, Wendell made himself consider the possibility. Chastising himself for allowing fear to stall him, he moved to the crates of cheese that were stacked nearby, and he placed them on top of one another beneath the air shaft, giving himself just enough of a boost to gain his first handhold. Once inside the shaft, the climbing would be easier since he could use both sides of the shaft to support himself. The fear of getting stuck in a section where the shaft was too narrow nearly made him abandon this course but his decision was made. Only cowards and thieves sneak away beneath a shroud of darkness, came Jensen's voice from below. I never believed you to be either of those things, yet here we are. Nearly howling in frustration, Wendell cursed himself for whatever carelessness allowed Jensen to find him here. I could see it in your eyes, Jensen said and I could hear it in your voice when we discussed the plans today. I knew from the way you held yourself that you had no intention of being here when those plans were put into place. You cannot hide these things from me. Never could. Thought you would know that by now. So, if you are determined to leave, at least come down here and face me like a man. With a final glance toward the sky, Though he saw little in the darkness, Wendell lowered himself back to the crates, wondering if he would ever see Katrin, Chase, or Benjen again. The thoughts were nearly as painful as seeing the disappointment in his brother's eyes. As the trees grew thicker, the group moved slowly along a narrow game trail. The air vibrated with the percussive cadence of hammer locusts, and Katrin could feel their call thrumming through her. A mass of downed trees suddenly loomed before them, deteriorating beneath a bed of moss and lichen. Thorn bushes around the rotting mass created a formidable barrier. These trees are crumbling, so you'd better watch your footing, Benjen said. Katrin made the climb easily stepping lightly across the slick limbs. Just as she gained solid ground, she saw the trunk beneath Osborne's boot collapse, and his leg was immersed in a writhing, humming black mass. Playing harmony to the hammer locusts, a cloud of angry hornets defended their nest. Engulfed by the storm, Osborne let out a cry and ran past Katrin, who sprinted after him. Burning stings on her neck and head spurred her to reckless speed, and she pumped her legs as fast as they would go. Each new pain drove her forward. Unable to distinguish hornet stings from the bites of thorns, she fled. Dark shapes darted around her, striking without mercy. Her head throbbed in time with the pounding of her pulse, 
and her vision deteriorated as her eyebrows swelled. A loud splash was the only warning she received before she hurtled through open air. Her brief flight was ended as she struck water, which was deep enough to break her fall. She plunged under for an instant, but then her feet found bottom and she propelled herself back up. When she broke the surface, coughing and gasping, she was thankful no hornets awaited her. Her left eye was nearly closed, and the swelling in her neck made it difficult to turn her head. Osborne was thrashing on the far shore in obvious agony, his entire head swelling. A moment later, Benjen and the others plunged into the water. Katrin ran to Osborne, who had gone still. His eyes were mere slits trapped between exaggerated folds of puffy flesh, and the flush skin of his lips curled outward to contain it. His skin deepened from mottled red to purple, and his body occasionally twitched. Cut his shirt away from his throat, Benjen barked, approaching with his herbal kit. Pull his lips open and depress his tongue. Katrin pried open Osborne's slack jaws and pressed his tongue down firmly with her fingers. Benjen pinched a generous portion of Celia's root which he blew into Osborne's open mouth. Then he puffed the fine powder into Osborne's lungs, using his hands to seal the opening of their mouths. A fine cloud of powder escaped when Benjen pressed on Osborne's chest with his hands, causing Osborne to exhale. Then Benjen blew into Osborne's mouth again. When Osborne went into spasm and coughed, Katrin let out her breath only then realizing she'd been holding it. The boy was racked with violent fits of coughing, which left him gasping, and each new breath tickled his throat, causing him to cough harder. Only wheezing and vomiting separated his fits, but he was breathing. Chase had stings on his neck and arms, but the swelling was minor. Strom had been behind them, and was untouched by the angry mass of hornets that had pursued the others. With Osborne out of immediate danger, Benjen mixed a large batch of sting remedy from several of his powders, and some clean water. When he looked up from his work, Katrin saw that his bottom lip had been stung several times and was twice its normal size. She realized then how painful it must have been for him to blow into Osborne's mouth and she marveled at his strength. Osborne's breathing gradually eased, but his eyes remained shut. Benjen told him to take shallow breaths until the tickle left his throat, and leaned him against a tree. In time, the herbs took effect. His body relaxed, and though the swelling was not gone, it no longer seemed to be getting worse. Benjen prepared another mixture, which he said would help the swelling, but they would have to swallow it. It was bitter and left a vile aftertaste. Osborne drank the mixture diluted with water, and he choked on it and suffered another coughing fit. Benjen's lip grew huge, but he kept working despite his obvious discomfort. When he checked their packs, he sighed. The others watched as he removed the smoked and salted goods that had gotten wet. 
and the pile of food he discarded was distressing to see after the work they had put into preparing it. He seemed to be having less trouble breathing, but his eyes were still shut. Katrin wanted to make for higher ground before they camped for the night, and she was trying to decide what to do when Benjen drew her aside. I don't think Osborne should walk any farther today. I should go ahead and scout out a suitable campsite, while the rest of you wait here. You all can rig a litter and attend to Osborne's needs while I'm gone. Agreed? She nodded. Good. He got his bow and a quiver of arrows, set off at a rapid pace, and was soon lost from sight. Chase and Strom found saplings, while Katrin unpacked her leather ground cloth and made a hole near each corner and several more along each side. She took a length of rope and unbraided it so she would have the six smaller lines she needed. She then lashed the ground cloth to the saplings to form a litter for Osborne. Sorry I took so long, Benjamin said when he returned. I found a decent campsite and a fairly clear path there. After lifting Osborne gently onto the litter, trying not to aggravate his injuries, they set off at a steady pace. Benjamin and Katrin pushed bushes and saplings aside in narrow places, allowing room for the stretcher Chase and Strom were carrying. The land finally began to slope upward, and Benjamin led them to the top of a hill shaded by an enormous tree. Under the tree waited a pile of firewood, pears, and a brace of rabbits, which explained why Benjamin had been so long in returning. Katrin removed her ground cloth from the makeshift litter while Strom lit a fire and Benjamin dressed the rabbits. They made soup for Osborne because he was quite ill and might not tolerate solid food. The campsite was a good choice. The area shaded by the tree was soft and covered with spongy moss, making it far more comfortable than rough ground. Strom, the only one unscathed by the attack of hornets, looked around the fire and shook his head. Benjamin had a very fat lip. Katrin's eye was swollen shut. Chase had large lumps on the back of his neck, and Osborne was puffed up as if he were filled with water. You're a sorry-looking group, I have to tell you, he said, grinning. But within moments, he began to shift where he sat. He grumbled as he stood and vigorously scratched the seat of his pants, apparently wishing he'd been more careful selecting leaves after relieving himself. Benjamin shook his head and retrieved his ever-diminishing supply of herbs. He made a suitable mixture, poured it into Strom's hand, and gave him a water flask. You'll have to apply that yourself, my friend he said, casting him a sidelong glance. You're on your own. Master Jarvis hurried along the inner corridors, his mouth and nose still covered with a scented kerchief to mask the smell. No one was immune to the effects of the siege, though he no longer considered this a siege. It was more like containment. The Jean were not trying to get in anymore. They just didn't want anyone to get out. 
Master Jarvis could not decide which was worse. The thought of Katrin in the hands of the Jean nearly made him sick. He'd taught her since she was a little girl, and she'd always been one of his favored students. The only thing that sickened him more was the thought of what Master Edling was trying to achieve. Some would say that Jarvis was seeing things that were not there, but he knew better. He'd known Edling for too long. Master Groden had been swayed into moving the refugees into the audience halls, based on the premise that the people would feel more secure surrounded by their peers than kept apart. It was a ruse, and Jarvis knew it. Though some people had expressed feelings of loneliness and a sense of being disconnected, he doubted any of them would consider being crammed into the audience halls an improvement. The fact that one of the special release bars used to trigger the cave-in mechanism was missing only solidified the reality in Master Jarvis's mind. When he reached Master Groden's quarters, he was pleased to see the old man awake and alone. May I trouble you? Who's there? Is that you, young Jarvis? Master Groden asked. There are some candied cherries in the dish there. Help yourself. I know how you like them. Then run along and... Be a good boy. Thank you, sir, Master Jarvis said, knowing that sometimes Master Groden seemed to drift into the past, remembering a time when Jarvis was but a student of his. The refugees have been moved into the audience halls. Yes, I know. They can all be together with their family and friends now. I wish I could do more for them. Maybe you could take them some candied cherries. Perhaps I will, Master Jarvis said. I'm concerned about Master Edling's motivation. I suspect he had another reason for wanting the people moved. You and Edling must end this rivalry between you, Master Groden said as he wagged his finger. Wasn't it just last week I caught the two of you fighting in the storeroom? In truth, that had been nearly thirty years ago, but Jarvis knew better than to tell Master Groden he was mistaken. Instead, he tried to nudge his aging mentor back into the present. I'd feel more comfortable with the refugees in the audience halls if all the cave-in release keys were accounted for. One is missing. Master Groden turned sharply and chewed on his beard a moment before he responded. I suppose that leaves me only one course of action, he said, his eyes clearer than Jarvis had seen them in some time. Since Edling feels compelled to represent the refugees, then that is how it shall be. Let it be known that he and his must remain in the audience halls at all times so that he can personally ensure the safety and well-being of his charges. Jarvis left with a smile on his face, wondering how much of Master Groden's condition was an act, and how much was the guise of a clever old man. Chapter 14 
The bitter taste of betrayal can be purged only by fire. Imitary. Slave. The next few days were long and miserable while they waited at the campsite to heal, taking time when they could to gather supplies. They were not in very good shape for hunting, so they settled for gathering fruits and nuts. The weather was clear and warm, and light breezes carried the many scents of summer. The comet was no longer visible in the night sky, and no new comets showed themselves. Katrin wondered if it had all been just a cosmic joke, the first comet really being the only comet. She could still feel a charge in the air, but she wondered if it was just a lingering effect from the first comet. Do you think there'll be more comets? She asked Benjen. Can't be certain, but I assume so. Legends say thousands of them crowd the night skies during the eastern noon which should occur some 75 years from now. I'm guessing we'll see a gradual increase over time. They had seen no further sign of soldiers, for which they were grateful, but the facts seemed to disturb Benjen. He was nervous, edgy, and constantly looking for signs of the Jean. I know there are more soldiers following us. I'm almost certain the man who died in the marsh wasn't alone but I can't understand why they don't attack. They're more heavily armed than we are, and they have to know that. They know where we are, and they've had time to bring a larger force here, he said. They may be heavily armed, Strom said, but I bet none of them has ever changed the course of a river, or knocked down the side of a mountain like I saw Katrin do. His words sounded strange to Katrin like something from a fireside story. But they knew they were coming here to face the Herald, Benjen replied. They must have known she would have great power. I don't think they're totally reacting out of fear, although I do agree they have good reason to be cautious. I still think they must have some other reason for following us, but not attacking. Perhaps they're bringing more troops here to confront us. Chase said. Maybe the terrain has just delayed them. We should remain watchful. Maybe they don't need to attack us now because they already know where we're going, Osborne observed. They're probably just waiting for us to walk into an ambush. Benjen nodded and hesitated before he said, You may be right, but I'm not sure. They may have other plans for us. Still, we need to be alert for signs of either ambush or pursuit. Katrin spent a long day looking for fruits, nuts, and the herbs and spices they needed to replenish Benjen's medicinal supplies. When she returned to camp, her companions seemed to be better, a great relief after days of misery. There was a strange look in their eyes as she approached. Strom stared at her so intently that she finally couldn't stand it any longer. What are you looking at? She asked Strom more sharply than she'd intended. I'm looking at your necklace, Cat. It didn't look like that when you first showed it to us. It was all milky and dull, and now it's... Chase finished the sentence for him. It's just beautiful. 
Katrin lifted the leather thong over her head and examined the carving, amazed by what she saw. The carved fish was now clear and almost lustrous. It caught the light and sent small prisms dancing around her. She ran her finger across it and found the surface smooth where it had seemed rough and porous before. Trying to find a reasonable explanation for the transformation of the small carving, she wondered if it had just been dirty and in need of cleaning. She tried to remember exactly how it had looked when she had first found it. It had seemed almost as if it were dried out rather than dirty. Maybe your swim cleaned it off, Chase said, which made better sense than anything else she had come up with, but Katrin wasn't so sure. She tried to put it from her mind, but in its place came anxious thoughts of Istra. Somehow, the light of a comet, or a goddess, depending on how she chose to perceive it, gave Katrin access to powers of which she had no knowledge or aptitude. Through some unknown process, she knew she could gather the comet's energy and release it in devastating ways. But she didn't know how to control it. Only when her life was in danger did she even seem to have full access to it. Most of the time it was a distant dream, tickling her senses then receding too fast to pursue. She needed to know how to use the energy without hurting anyone. If she did not learn to control her outbursts, it might kill her and everyone around her. It was an uncomfortable feeling, and it put Katrin on edge. That concludes this episode of Call of the Herald. For more information and additional downloads, visit brianrathbone.com. Thank you for listening.